Hello friends, after a long time or a short time if you are binging us, we are here again with our podcast and I am Sanchi and as usual I have with me Ashwini and not as usual, I have a guest today and our guest is Raghav Mittal. Hi Raghav. Hi Sanchi, hi Ashwini. How have you been doing Sanchi? I'm good, I'm good. How have you been Raghav? I have been good too. Actually, answering that is not that easy in a few words, but uh, I'll just say I've been good too. Yeah. <laughs> so Raghav was with me in IIT Kanpur and Ashwini was in ISI Bangalore. So do you guys want to talk about that? <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Definitely ISI is not Pakistan's intelligence agency. Just clarifying. Um, yeah, did you want to ask me something, Raghav? Oh yes, uh, I did, of course. Uh, like my question was, which ISI were you in? And uh, just for starters' sake, I'll, I'll be happy to know what your major was. Uh, so, ISI stands for Indian Statistical Institute, and my major—I I did my bachelor's there, so I got my bachelor's in mathematics. But obviously, we also studied math, stat, physics, computer science. Uh, some people also studied economics, but majorly pure math. Yes. So about my majors, uh, I studied material science and engineering. Now uh, that was my that is where I, that is the subject I did my bachelor's in uh, from IIT Kanpur. And uh, I don't know if you're all familiar. Kan- IIT Kanpur is not exactly in Kanpur. It's 20 kilometers from Kanpur in a in a very remote place called Kalyanpur, which is more <laughs> typical of Uttar Pradesh. And uh, and of course, I have done my bachelor's in civil engineering from the same place. Nice. Yeah, I know this is all nice, but uh, of course, that's not the only thing that describes us, isn't it? Right. Okay. Uh, I of course that's just a very small part of uh, who we are. I'm not sure about myself. (laughs) Math is a very big part of my life. But definitely, at least for Sanji, I know that, you know, she's way, way more than that. She's a musician and a podcaster and a storyteller and a story writer. And what about you, Raghav? Other than than engineering, core engineering, I like to run a lot. I like long distance running. I like cycling a lot. And uh, I play the keyboard. And a couple of times I pick up other instruments. I keep picking up instruments and then uh, trying my hand at it. But uh, keyboard is what I've uh, stuck to for a long while now. That's that's very cool. Yeah. And what about you, Ashwini? You'd like to know what you do. Yeah. Uh, I do a lot of math. But recently I've uh, gotten into a bit of computer science. So currently my work is to uh, kind of formalize mathematical theorems into a computer language called Lean. Uh, That's what my PhD is about. But apart from that, uh, I do this podcast. I'm into music. I I used to dance a lot. I also bike. um, And what else? Sanchi, do you know what I do? You like food. Oh, I love food. Yeah, I do like to cook. 
I love memes. Yeah, I guess that's it. So, Raghav, what is it that you do professionally? Uh, okay, so professionally, um, I am a design engineer and I work as a technical consultant with uh, this company called uh, MN Dispur. It's based out of Kolkata. And uh, the four sectors that we work in are iron and steel, oil and gas, uh, power, and chemicals, chemicals slash fertilizers. So we design uh, projects for them. Uh, by projects, I mean uh, from concept, from the very concept to the commissioning of the plant, we do all the design engineering. So yes, uh, that's what my job is about. And uh, so, Raga, what is it that you enjoy about your work? Ah, uh, here I have a lot of things to say. So maybe I'll start off with uh, the first thing being that uh, it's it's a continuation of whatever it is that I'd studied in my bachelor's. And uh, even when I was selecting my job, I was adamant about uh, picking up an option wherein I get to utilize and develop uh, the work uh, that I'd done during my bachelor's. The work as in the knowledge I'd acquired and the analysis skills I'd acquired during my bachelor's. It's why I was like adamant on sticking to core engineering. So because this uh, company uh, designs uh, plants, does the design engineering for steel plants and material science and engineering was my major, uh, I chose this job. And uh, that, that, that is the reason behind choosing this job. Okay, But uh, when it comes to the work that this company does, uh, it's, it's exciting on several fronts. When it comes to designing a steel plant, there are, there are so many aspects to it that uh, even during my bachelor's, I had ignored. Okay, out here this company that, I was, that I'm working with, I realized that uh, it's, it's a huge team of engineers from multiple fields. And not just engineers, you have people from other departments too. So for example, from the finance department, from project management department, from the administration side, who come together Converge and then uh, you brainstorm this entire idea of how to go about erecting a steel plant. Say, for example, if it is from scratch or augmenting to a steel plant if it already exists. So it's 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 convergence of a lot of teams together, and uh, there are so many details to it. And that is what I realized uh, when I visited different steel plants. Uh, that, you know, it's 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 a challenge, a real challenge to get things together, and uh, of course, it's, it's a challenge to design them in the first place. So, uh, so do you work specifically only in steel, or do you also work in oil and gas, or like, uh, what's the difference between the setting up of these plants? Is it very different? Actually, I'll, I'll narrow it down, and uh, that will be much better. So, steel is, as I told you earlier, a very vast field in itself. Uh, within steel, uh, there is one stage, uh, like if I were to explain steel making from the very beginning, you have raw materials, right? And then you process raw materials across multiple stages. So across those multiple stages, there is one stage called secondary metallurgy, which is what uh, I specialize in within my company. Okay. So I design processes which come under the secondary metallurgy bracket or bucket, so to speak. And uh, that is what I do in the steel sector. When it comes to the oil and gas sector, uh, we are working on uh, uh, a product that oil and gas companies produce 
uh, in their distillation corner, which is currently uh, more or less a nightmare for oil, all oil and gas companies. It's called uh, pet coke, and this pet coke is uh, like if if you know about the distillation uh, process, you you have a slight idea that uh, at the very bottom of it, the the least volatile component that you get from the distillation column after processing crude is this is this ugly uh, semi-solid pet coke okay and apparently it is uh, it is used as a very low grade fuel so the work that our company does is we try and uh, we try and process it through this process known as whole gasification and uh, generate higher value out of it as compared to just processing it uh, as a low grade fuel or using it as a low grade so those are the two things that i do like in the steel industry and separately in the uh, oil and gas industry yeah. that's actually something which is very um, useful i think because given the prices of oil and gas if you could actually manage to you know convert it into something <clears throat> that is i believe you are saying that it is maybe not as efficient as uh, the oil that is produced oh right actually this is this is a by product of the crude process that is processed and uh, right now the very handling of this by product for oil and gas companies is uh, is a troublesome procedure and task so they just uh, and what's happening is because we've been extracting oil for so long right now uh, the kind of oil that we are getting out of uh, existing wells uh, is not of that high quality so i don't know if you know about it but uh, oil is essentially uh, categorized in under these two heads like uh, one of them is uh, like in one under one head we are measuring the density or the gravity of the oil okay and in the sec under the second head we are measuring the sulfur content so the density of oil is measured by something known as api gravity and uh, the lighter the oil is the uh, the beneficial it is right because then you get uh, the really useful components say for example uh, petrol gasoline i mean gasoline diesel and kerosene and so on which are the light components and if this oil gets heavier and keeps on getting heavier then you get the not so high value components like petrol on the other hand you have uh, as i told you the sulfur content now the the lesser the sulfur content uh, the better it is for you because then you know, you don't have to spend as much uh, resources in processing it so this this has an interesting category, uh, like uh, nomenclature if the sulfur content is lesser then you call it sweet if the sulfur content is higher then you call it sour so what you prefer is essentially a combination of light and sweet crude uh, that is that is what has real real value but apparently because uh, all oil wells have been exploited uh, reasonably well so you know what we are getting is uh, heavy and sour crude available to us only in very selective places and, and, and in that sense us is very fortunate because us has uh, light and uh, sweet crude which is available on shore okay so they don't have to go uh, offshore miles offshore searching for it so in that sense i don't know god has blessed them there so that way. so yes uh, i was talking about pet coke right so there is a lot of um, heavy and sour crude that is being generated 
and along with this comes the uh, like comes comes the comes the trouble of increasing quantity of pet coal so what our company is doing is we are addressing it by uh, processing this pet coal and not just using it as a low grade fuel but uh, making some very high value added products uh, out of it that's pretty cool <clears throat> very nice uh, what do you think is um, i mean obviously i know on paper uh, you know all these um, alternatives to oil such as wind energy or solar power do you think these are actually sustainable the period that we are going through i would say is like the energy transition period in which uh, if you consider all the renewable sources that we have at the moment uh, we simply cannot depend on them entirely given the economics of it and uh, since economics is the driving factor for realizing any of these energy sources uh, in the current period so to speak uh, we cannot have we cannot have 100% dependence on renewables which is why what what everyone uh, will have to think of and what uh, what is actually being thought of uh, by leaders all across is uh, a portfolio mix of energy sources so different energy sources have their own merits demerits so let's just uh, try to create the best possible portfolio and uh, harness our energy from those sources so if you if uh, since you raised this question of oil versus other areas then uh, Uh, i think it's not just a question of uh, like directly comparing oil uh, with others because what's happening these days and and this is pretty exciting because us uh, like i'll alter you like beforehand us and europe have already been very aggressive on this front uh, what they're doing is they're utilizing all these carbon rich fuels which are the major emitters of co2 and uh, they're making sure that the co2 that is being generated from these sources is being well addressed okay so uh, like what are the carbon rich sources carbon rich fuel sources you have coal you have uh, you have crude crude say you have a couple of things and these are the major ones right crude and coal and uh, there are also the major polluters like the major emitters for anthropogenic uh, co2 emissions and uh, again for anthropogenic co2 emissions you have power plants you have cement plants steel plants uh your fertilizers chemical refineries all of which use either crude or coal so what i'm trying to say uh in a nutshell is that uh, they're addressing these co2 emissions known as uh, through a framework known as carbon capture uh, utilization and storage so uh in a way they're competing so coal plus crude plus carbon capture utilization and storage are competing together with uh, the renewable sources wherein you club uh, you can club all these like wind solar geothermal and so on hmm. apparently like as of today uh, all these renewable sources have not yet proven their economics uh, to be viable and sustainable so they're having a tough time and in fact uh, crude coal plus ccus they're catching up so uh, that is something that everyone I, i would strongly recommend all uh, like all our podcast listeners to Or read up on CCUS carbon capture utilization stories. Nice, interesting. Uh, a while ago, we were having this discussion on uh, 
comparison between renewable sources and the conventional sources right conventional sources being crude and uh, coal right. uh, i would just like to add to it that uh, there are many other energy sources that have sprung up uh, rec- not not recently some of them recently but uh, others have been others have been in use for a while now technologies have matured within those spaces so one of them is of course you're all familiar with nuclear power so nuclear power apparently has has advanced a lot in terms of its uh, in terms of the technology that they're using there are so many different designs of reactors that uh, have come up which are much more efficient and safer uh, so yes nuclear power had advanced has advanced a lot but as you're all familiar nuclear has this um, psychological barrier that it is yet to so i mean yet to cross so uh, cement, getting everyone support and cementing that support on nuclear power is, is the tough task that uh, it has to bridge somehow uh, then you have uh, coal gasification coal gasification is another process like using coal not directly in power plants but uh, gasifying it and at the same point of time uh, separating the carbon like carbon dioxide out of it and then using it for power generation and then for a whole lot of other things so that is another area people are also uh, working on hydrogen based uh, power generation hydrogen uh, as uh, you're all familiar is a very clean fuel if you combust it you get water so again that's 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 great right so <laughs> people are working on uh, hydrogen based uh, power sources too so there's a whole gamut of uh, energy sources that uh, people are working on right now which is why i insisted on there being uh, an optimized portfolio of energy sources to harness on and uh, not just discussing on you know, this versus that that makes sense you know having like various different energy sources also it's it's that thing right the problem with a lot of renewable sources is that um, a lot of them are very location specific like not every place is optimum for wind energy and not like in in uh, the higher latitudes you cannot function solely on solar energy sure good enough for the tropics but that's why we should be not relying only on like a single source or like two sources but you know like a mixture of both so that you know not only is economy optimized but so is environmental damage actually there are three uh... like major major drawbacks of renewables which uh, in general discussions we don't have, we don't gen- i mean we don't bring them up so i'll just quickly highlight all those three again so renewables apparently require a lot of area land area okay and uh, now land as you are all familiar is not is not easy right and it's it's not cheap which is why what what happens is all these renewables say for example a solar uh, a solar farm is set up uh, in remote areas which are very far from say the cities because there the land is cheap right so what happens is when you set up a solar farm which is far from uh, a city which has power which has high power requirement then you increase your uh, transmission distance and that shoots up your transmission costs so because of that uh, there are a lot of extra i mean there are costs uh, associated with renewables which we tend to ignore so that is one of the things second thing is uh, you're all familiar everyone is familiar about the intermittency of uh, uh, renewables right you cannot rely on them for a stable sustainable supply of power and uh, that is what is the requirement for all grids for all uh, like grid uh, based electricity sources 
why is that a requirement because uh, of course we don't need electricity during the day but you know we we need a lot more electricity during the night as well uh, all the all of us are asleep but uh, you know all our all our factories all our like huge factories like steel plants power plants uh, major factories are all all running so uh, i don't know if you're all familiar but uh, you know a steel plant is running 24/7 365 days you cannot stop it so you cannot stop it because of this this mammoth furnace that it has called a blast furnace uh you just cannot stop it has a period uh, of somewhere around 10 to 15 years uh through which it's constantly running until unless it, it has some it has some uh, like breakdown issues or something like that so you require a lot of power at night and of course during the day and most importantly you need this power to be stable and uh, in fact sustainable yeah and renewables does not promise you that so that is another drawback so this is the second drawback third drawback is sometimes you know you need a power source which you can quickly manipulate so uh, what happens is the grid has a fluctuating power demand okay sometimes the power demand shoots up and the grid has to address it no matter what so from renewables uh, you cannot you cannot expect it to suddenly give you more power right because uh, we are not storing the energy that's being uh, the power that is being stored uh, that is being generated from renewables why are we not storing it right now is because it's way too expensive i mean it's it's neck breaking expensive so we cannot do that so because renewables have these three major drawbacks uh, we like as a whole as worldwide it's it's necessary for us to get over this delusion that the uh, renewables are dependable for the long term uh, but don't you think that the shift has to be made sometime because first of all we are running out of reserves and secondly uh, the environment right right uh, so and also regarding sorry just saying regarding your first issue that uh, you know there isn't enough land i think people are working on doing farming vertically uh, i right, mean right. in instead of uh, having actual farms you build towers of farms and you power it with led lights and basically it's like uh, you can do farming indoors and obviously it's at a very uh, baby stage right now but it definitely right. has a lot of potential so that right, much right. more uh, land will be freed up yeah i mean i agree with you uh, in fact uh, that's what's required immediately that you know that that like we need sincere r&d to uh, develop these technologies i mean i mean take them up higher along the ladder of uh, technology readiness levels uh, because we want them to be mature enough to be you know uh, to acquire that commercial scale right now they're in their nascency right that is one of the things uh, and secondly as sachi mentioned the, the you know the whole uh, question of the environment that is that is an immediate concern and uh, in order to address that concern uh, we have to think of solutions which are you know economically sustainable so i'll i'll give you the small example of what germany did so germany uh, has had this approach which is which has been which has leaned on uh, renewables for quite long now so i think they they began way back in uh, mid 2000s when they started switching over to renewable sources of energy but uh, only recently they found out that you know this is this is not sustainable economically 
where they're spending way too much from their pocket uh, in ensuring a cleaner environment of course that is a require that that is needed too but uh, that that needs to be offset uh, i mean that that cannot just keep spilling into your pocket right so uh, they found other ways around it which are not dependable on renewables so they're shifting gradually shifting back to conventional sources of energy which are more reliable which are more stable and augmenting to those conventional sources of energy uh, frameworks which can help address climate change so that is what uh, countries are shifting to like renewables as of now is not is not proving to be a dependable source of energy so what do we require completely dependable so what do we require to make renewables completely dependable oh so what we require is uh, again <laughs> Uh, uh the answers must come from uh, my field so to speak uh, which is materials uh, science so we require uh, amazing storage solutions like uh, amazing battery uh, solutions uh, to scale up uh, renewables and to make them um, practical and both economically feasible so uh, as of today uh, storage costs are as i mentioned neck breaking which is why uh, we are not using large scale battery storage uh, for all the power that the renewable sources are generating okay even if we uh, like i i don't have the numbers on my uh, on my fingers right now uh, but you like it's 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 even if we were to store the power that is being generated from renewables for one day the cost would be from what what i last read would be nearly four times what we are paying today for per unit of uh, like like electricity consumed so because of that uh, if there is some some of the other breakthrough in storage solutions then that would really really clear the way for uh, reliability on renewables yeah that's that's actually very interesting i i always used to wonder uh, for example places like chennai or london these places are very windy and i always used to wonder why <laughs> don't they just build windmills over here you know right yeah makes a lot of sense also a lot of the procedures that are used in factories or the known methods i don't know if there is any uh, current research that is i mean i'm sure there is current research going on uh, but most of the factories the methods that they use are quite uh, old right or am right, i right. Right wrong are you are you uh, referring to some specific uh, methods uh, in the sense for example you spoke about the oil extraction method with the pet coke and all uh, yep. maybe there are other ways to extract oil which i mean at least our factories are based on these ancient techniques right i i i i'm not sure actually and it's a question yeah, so okay okay so uh, yes of course there are a lot of technological advances that are taking place uh, when it comes to processing your crude because as i mentioned of uh, like the composition of the crude is changing a lot uh, so the distillation column is a pretty like is a pretty standard unit operation that you have in, all, in almost all refineries i mean it's it's a necessity so that is what uh, like 
what the crude that you extract from wells that is uh, like there is there is a distillation column which uh, heats at different temperatures and then through it you get different components so that is there but then coupled with the distillation column you have so many other units which are uh, refining your uh, the products that come out of the distillation column so on that front yes there are so many advances uh, new unit operations are being set up are being augmented to the current refineries that we have uh, to make the fuels cleaner uh, and you know to refine i mean for the refining refining process so yes that's been ongoing so uh, uh, i think i talked i touched about uh, i touched a little on carbon capture utilization and storage but i did not describe it uh, i would like i would like to take a few minutes and describe this because um, i am um, very positive that it would give others everyone all the listeners a glimmer of hope as to how uh, you know the world is working i mean different people uh, different uh, companies different labs are working on uh, addressing the entire issue of uh, increasing co2 emissions so, yeah sure yeah, yeah so yes uh, there is this framework known as um, carbon capture utilization and storage right so uh, what the entire objective of it is that no matter what we do immediately we cannot uh, replace or substitute uh, the existing engines of our economy right so by what are the engines of the economy like of course all of us need uh, need homes to live in we need uh, vehicles to travel in vehicles by vehicles i mean transport uh, some or the other transportation method and uh, we need basic infrastructure for our cities right now making all these uh, requires some like what are the basic uh, materials that uh, make all all these possible there's steel cement and power and uh, of course you have others but these are the leading ones and to make all of these currently uh, there is a lot of co2 that's been that we emit for so steel requires a lot of coal so does uh, cement uh, cement production and so does power right and then you have uh, like these these transport all, all the trans uh, like major transportation systems they run on uh, pro, like products of crude crude products right so uh, in our, like to keep the economy running uh, at the pace that it is and to maintain it co2 will be produced everyone uh, like all of, we all know that so what do we do? like how do we address it now that's the big question to answer so uh, to address it uh, is this we we have come up with this framework known as carbon capture utilization and storage so i'll just quickly go about it so what uh, what the people what uh, you know the those who have brainstormed this entire framework have found out is all the sources that we have all, all the major sources that we have of co2 emissions uh, what we can do is we can uh, install some systems carbon capture systems there which what they will do is uh, they'll, they'll they'll separate the carbon dioxide from all these emissions all the off gases that are being generated from the major like uh, emitters what are the major emitters again as i mentioned power steel cement fertilizers oil refineries and so on these are the major emitters right so uh, it would be best to separate the co2 from all these sources and then do something about the co2 okay so again the brain, uh, those who brainstormed this and that framework have come up with three ingenious ways of addressing this co2 
first one first one comes under the head of storage under the storage head they have proven that it's possible and it's feasible and sustainable to store the co2 deep underground in some rock, in some certain uh, specific rock formations which will keep it sealed and which will not let it leak at all yeah basically keep it sealed for for time immemorial so that is one of the ways in which you can address your dose so what you do is you compress it uh, you purify it uh, compress it and then you store it underground okay second way to address this is uh, i'm sure you're all familiar that right? co2 is a raw raw material for some of the industries uh, that, that we have so one of the industries is uh, something which is very close to all of us it's the food and beverage industry which in all your aerated drinks you have co2 right so food and aerated drinks uh, food and beverage industry sorry apparently requires co2 uh, as a raw material for their processing so all the co2 that is being generated from these plants uh, can be purified compressed and then sent to these industries food and beverage industry is one the other industry is uh, um, your fertilizer industry so i don't know if for all the organic chemistry people i don't know if you remember your organic chemistry uh, like in converting ammonia to urea uh, what you require is essentially co2 okay so nh3 to urea which is uh, nh2 co nh2 uh, it's this we make it react with carbon dioxide so again carbon dioxide is a raw material there also and there are similarly there are other industries so this would be utilization of co2 in other industries and the third one which is uh, in my opinion which is my favorite is uh, that the oil companies are willing to buy the co2 from you now uh, why are they willing to buy this co2 our oil all our oil reserves are depleting right uh, what happens is uh, once an oil reserve is used up to 30 to 35% uh, then the pressure of that oil reserve drops okay and it becomes uh, difficult to extract oil from it okay now how is it that the pressure is uh, built up in the first place so in in an oil well you have on on the top you have natural gas uh, in the middle you have oil and then below it you have water so all this is you know essentially pressurizing the entire oil well but when you use up 30 to 35% of it the pressure of the oil well drops right so they found a way to uh, pumping pressurized purified co2 into these oil wells and repressurize them okay so uh, what this will enable is co2 again co2 being inert uh, would not at all react with the uh, oil is that that is something that is proven and at the same point of time it will help oil companies in easier extraction of uh, crude from the wells so the co2 the oil companies are willing to pay a price for it and at the same point of time what we are doing is we are uh, we are addressing climate change by storing all the co2 that we are generating deep uh, and sealing it in oil wells so it's a win win situation yeah So these are the three ways that uh, we are working on to address CO2. Yeah. Incredibly ingenious. Yeah, it's pretty good. And uh, cool thing is that uh, all of these are fairly mature technologies. So uh, they have been in existence for quite long in the US. Like US has already uh, stored and utilized. more than as far as i remember more than 30 million tons per annum that is what their run rate is right now they've been storing and utilizing 30 million tons of co2 per annum and the others are actually picking up so up until now uh, there was a cost extra costs had to be paid to do this 
right? Because uh, like only one of these methods uh, gives you returns, which is selling it to oil companies. The other two you have to uh, like pull it. I mean, you have to spend your own money. So, but now uh, with your advances in technology, the entire process has become much cheaper. And uh, yeah, Europe is uh, pursuing it aggressively. In fact, uh, the, the government has come up with several mandates on this front, and I'm sure India will follow soon. I hope it does because we are going through a lot of environmental problems currently. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know about how easily it is implementable in the current system. Oh, what do you um, mean by that? It's a very open-ended thing. I mean, in, I don't know how the current system works, and I don't know how how difficult it is to change to adapt to this. First of all. To answer that, I would say what we're doing is uh, we're not bringing about an, an entirely new technology and uh, replacing the existing systems. Okay, we're saying that uh, our dependency on the current system, the conventional uh, sources of energy, will remain, and we're not disturbing it at all. We are just augmenting towards certain uh, facilities and procedures to address the CO2 component of it. So, to give you a very small example. That is exactly what we are doing with the BPCL Kochi refinery. So BPCL Kochi refinery told us that, hey, you know, our pet coke generation has been increasing every year. And uh, using it, uh, like we cannot use it as a low-grade fuel because the government has come up with certain mandates on uh, usage of pet coke. So apparently mm-hmm. pet coke produces a lot of sulfur dioxide and uh, nitrous oxides, which uh, the government has put certain restrictions on. So you cannot use pet coke because it produces... Uh, high levels of uh, like pollutants, other pollutants. So they came up to us, they said, like, like, what, what can we do about it? Then, then we told them about, about this framework. And then we told them that, uh, you know, you can go on with your uh, process as it is, as usual. What we'll do is we will augment your facility, uh, some unit operations, and they will uh, address the CO2 part and the uh, sulfur dioxide and nitrous dioxide part for you. So... From the implementability point of view, uh, I would say this is where it makes uh, easy for us to switch, not just switch, but to like again augment uh, this facility to the existing systems. Mm-hmm. So there is hope for the environment, right? There is hope, but then uh, yeah, there is a silver lining to it. I don't know how aggressive, uh, like uh, how our government will be pursuing it. Because uh, so far, US and Europe um, have been have have taken taken a strong footing on it uh, by uh, introducing certain policy measures from the government side to encourage it. So again, as I told you, uh, only one of the solutions that among the three solutions that we have, only one of them gives us some returns, while the other two don't. So they have to be uh, complemented with uh, you know strong policy support. To realize them as soon as possible otherwise they won't, we won't be able to realize them like practically so this is something that requires a multidisciplinary handling the government has a strong role to play in it yes yeah this is a very noob sort of question no, but no. i am a noob so is do you think there could be a time in the future where we might have to take a step back in terms of technology i mean say we won't be able to consume that much electricity or there may be limits as to how much a household can consume and uh, how how many cars you can use. 
I think that this is a distinct possibility because we are running out of uh, non-renewable sources. Correct, right, Raghav? Yes, yes, we are running short of them, but uh, not for the next uh, 50 to 60 years at least, yes. We'll still be alive, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. I see. The thing I want to say is that I know everyone when they talk about technology, right? Everyone expects um, it to always go forward and with leaps and bounds. But very often, tech is it stops at a certain point, and beyond that, there is no point in improving it. Like for example, you have the needle, the eyed needle. So the eyed needle is a feature of um, the late Stone Age. It was found in sites in France. So eyed and unide needles were being used. And the same design that the late Stone Age man made is what we are using today. So is there any such, such a technology that doesn't need to be improved in this field? I don't know what an eyed needle is. Yeah. It's a needle with an eye. Oh, I Okay. You know, the, the one that you cannot put your thread in. And you feel like squint at it and then you wonder whether you need specs and then yeah. you realize you're wearing specs and then you realize that okay this is just not for me so yeah that kind of a needle yeah got it well if i were to think uh, more on it it could be a possible advancement to an eyed needle right of course we we are now using an eyed needle uh, in so many places i mean that's an essential component but uh, We've gone so many levels over and above where we were uh, in Stone Ages, right? Uh, like we have automatic sewing machines now, so many things, yeah. So that is true, but the major component of these things is the needle, and that design hasn't changed. So yeah, in that, that same right. in that same way, is there anything in this industry that does not need to be changed? You know, because all we talk about ever is you know change, change. Is there something we need to keep constant? I mean, some things are constant, right? The way you harness energy, at least in factories, that is kind of constant. For example, Raghav spoke about the distillation process. I think that is a constant that is here to stay. Unless somebody really comes up with a... Uh, I mean, I don't think that can change. Can it, Raghav? I don't know. I, I, I would say I'm not uh, qualified enough to comment on that because of lack of uh, understanding of chemical engineering. Uh, <laughs> so essentially the distillation is a distillation component. Uh, it's just one example, but uh, what you're doing is you're segregating uh, the different components of crude there, right? So other than keeping it, separation can be done for other means too, right? I don't know. There are so many other separation techniques. Yeah, of course, uh, we do learn yeah. about them, but I mean, right. there is a reason as to why this is used because it is right. one of the most efficient and kind of maximizes uh, gain. That is to say that our technological landscape is always going to be a mixture of constants and changes. Yeah, for sure. Can I, sorry, um, but can I give a philosophical mathematical explanation for this never say sorry for that continue <laughs> so i don't know how familiar you guys are with the concept of vector spaces um a vector space oh i'll have to explain a field basically what a vector space is uh, is that you have something called a basis in it 
and a basis is a set of some elements and a vector space is essentially just built by combining these elements in different forms. Uh, similarly, we have a basis over here and everything we do is built on that basis. But at the same time, I think what technology tries to do is sometimes maybe just find another vector space or a different basis to work with. So instead of the eyed needle, you were to start with say a wheel or some other instrument, then if you built a technology based on that basis, you would have different industries and different technologies right now. You know, with maybe not the exact same functionality, but pretty similar. And I yeah, forgot. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I forgot why I was giving you all this philosophy. Yeah. Okay. But my point is that, as you said, there is no point of trying to improve the eyed needle technology. But maybe there may be some point in trying to find an alternative to the eyed needle and building an yeah, entirely different system. That is true. But in this specific case, good luck. <laughs> I mean, you cannot. I mean, yeah, a sewing machine is basically just an eyed needle with something that makes it easier to operate with. Sure, yeah. I don't know, I'm just fascinated by needles. Yeah, I, I understand. It's just a, it's a possibility, right? It's just like Doctor Strange looking at alternate parallel universes and at the point that the eye needle was made. Maybe some other PhD student came up with some other idea and his supervisor, supervisor thought it was a shit idea and didn't let him work on it which is why we know about the eye needle because maybe the guy who came up with the eye needle had more privilege. Sorry for this completely off track rant, but that's basically how technology happens or, you know, things happen. So you're talking about the human side of technology. No, I'm just saying that there could always be alternatives that we never came to know about because the idea was not publicized enough or advertised enough. So that is the human side of technology. Sure. Because yeah. the humans are the one who are controlling the dissemination of information and everything. Yeah. For example, in the math world, at least, um, you know, due to the Cold War and all, uh, Russians, uh, Russian mathematicians have an entirely different system of working with things. And to this date, American mathematicians or the non-Russian people don't know this entire wealth of knowledge that they have. And probably their math is way more advanced than ours currently. You know? Are you trying to tell me there's a Russian and a non-Russian mathematics? Hey, Sachi, kind of, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, hey, don't you remember Erodov questions, huh? <laughs> yeah, I from, do. From it's, just, it's just, it's bad enough, there's one kind of math, I mean, for me, I'm not a very <laughs> mathematical person, so like, there's one kind of math, but there's one more kind of math, it just blows yeah. my mind. I think right now, I would possibly say similar things about Japanese and Chinese math, because they are literature, they write in their own language, right, and their literature uh, is possibly not read as much as English or French literature for math. And Russian literature is just, 
beginning to be translated and read properly. So maybe in technology, something similar is happening, you know, where um, there's stuff we just don't know about because it was maybe in Chinese or Sanskrit. That makes sense. There's always stuff that we don't know and we don't know that we don't know or we know that we don't know or we don't know that we know or we know that we know. I, I just mentioned a Johari window. It was fun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Raghav, you had a question. Uh, yes. So since you were talking about uh, different uh, nations having their own languages in, uh, in for, for their subjects and, and the dissemination of languages in those subjects, uh, dissemination of those subjects, information on those subjects and knowledge in, of those subjects in those languages, uh, this is a new question that I have from my side. Uh, mm -hmm. Do all people like across different nations code in English or they also code in their, their own respective languages. Uh, it's being developed currently. I'm, I've been seeing something about developing lean and I think it was Spanish, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, it is. Uh, in fact, I do have a friend. He's actually from IIT Kanpur. Uh, and he, I think, is working on... Um, formalizing languages or basically putting in languages into the computer yeah so basically he's uh, working on that so yeah this thing is an ongoing thing and uh, it's very difficult uh, yeah you might have heard about how sanskrit is apparently a great language to code in yeah i've heard that do we have languages which, uh, which are based on Sanskrit? On um, Sanskrit, I don't know actually. But I do okay. know NASA is doing some research regarding that. Yeah, but obviously I think uh, English is possibly the language which is uh, highly coded in. Maybe followed by French. French and not Mandarin. I have no idea what happens in China stays in China. Honestly, I have no Even, idea. Seriously. Yeah, I, I mean, okay, I have heard some crazy things about uh, China, which I'm not comfortable discussing on a public podcast. Makes uh, sense. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things happening in China, both good and bad. As far as technology is concerned, we have no idea about what they do because their system is entirely different. Uh, but as far as I know, they actually have an app for, like, you know how we have um, Android and Google and all the apps that you have in the Play Store. They have their own version of each of these things and maybe a better version. So there's so many things that we cannot access because we are not part of that country. Yeah, yeah. Do you think this kind of a thinking that we have, uh, like, you know, if push comes to shove and we have a great environmental crisis, like, like a huge worldwide environmental crisis, which I know is going to happen in our lifetime because so many bad things happen in our lifetime. So I mean, it's 2020. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I think the next one will be in 2040, you know, because multiples of 20 or something. So, yeah, where was I going with this? I was going somewhere with this. I had a point. Yes. So, um, do you think at that time, instead of becoming like, you know, globally helpful and sharing out life-saving technologies, countries will hoard it for itself and use it for geopolitics? Hoard uh, what? Like hold, hold technologies with themselves? Yeah, like suppose, uh, okay, so suppose there is another pandemic, okay, with with a higher death rate and a lower recovery rate, you know, and one country, like, like, say, suppose the US makes the vaccine, okay, like, not, not a private player, but if the government manages to find a vaccine, Will they or will they not give the vaccine to Iran? (laughs) I love the question. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, think about it. Like, will they or will they use that? Hmm? Let me ask you something. When has US given anything to Iran except for war and bloodshed? Exactly my point. So will this be used for ethnic cleansing? That was a big jump. No, I mean, it it starts from not giving a vaccine and it starts from putting sanctions. Then it goes into using it to have a better economic deal for the US or with, you know, as and and a loss for those regions. And then it comes to this whole thing where the US might, you know, informally occupy and the UN will do nothing because who's the biggest factor of benefactor of the UN? It's the US. And as it goes on and on, it will eventually come to a point, either you have an ethnic cleansing or you have an ethnocide. I I think uh, there is a global community right now that we have. And uh, if, if, unless the US becomes powerful, super powerful enough, uh, if it takes such a radical step, it would definitely face backlash from the international community, isn't it? So I do? think other I'm other other sure players, would, yeah, other players would. Not, uh, no, I'm not I sure mean, about that. No, we're not sure. We're not sure about that because I don't. I the communities is not as global as we think it is there are many blocks within it and within the blocks there are many blocks and geopolitics is this really really vast and complex field right, right. Uh, right. by the way you do know that russia has already come out with a vaccine it's in yeah, I know. degree of testing yeah i know that i'm just yeah. waiting for it to you know become available so that you know i see what geopolitics happens I feel like it might spark World War Three. Nah, this is not. I mean, I don't think it will because I don't know. It all depends on Russia's trade agreements because one of Russia's like India used to be in the past Russia's staunch ally, and we have been moving away from them. See, the thing is, in the beginning, 1960s, 70s, India was. Um, we had this policy of Panchashil, where we were like, we are neutral. That's how we didn't really get pulled into the Cold War kind of a situation. Otherwise, India, Pakistan was a very ripe region to, you know, become kind of like 
you know a, a contested place for a cold war but our foreign policy was robust and geared towards neutrality but over time as governments have changed and and as ideologies have changed we have been drifting away from our uh, you know from our connection with russia so i don't know russia seems isolated unless russia has china for an ally then we are all dead so yeah i think that is a very big possibility yeah it is yeah so we are all basically dead yes <laughs> you, you see i'm i'm a doomsday prepper i mean there's always okay children this is the time when you just stop listening to this and go and cry in your bed uh sorry about <laughs> that uh but uh, yeah i think on the bright side there are other players too i mean i would not completely um you know sideline japan or oh, sorry undermine oh. japan nobody is undermining japan trust me but the thing is and not sure and obviously europe, europe. <laughs> yeah europe israel There are some very big players out there. My worries are majorly about uh, communication. So I saw this documentary that spoke about how China has made uh, big advances in um, satellite uh, technologies, and basically they have developed things that, or I don't recall completely. Maybe it was that they now have their own system or something, but they have technology. Oh, you're talking about Baidu. You're talking about Baidu. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think you're talking about Baidu. Yeah, you're talking about Baidu. It. Yeah. This they is have basically... their own technology which works without satellite communication, but they also have a way to disrupt the satellite communication of the world. and a lot of us's military prowess or you know th- their uh, weapons are uh, controlled by satellites so that would be very interesting how it would play out you know we are talking about a possibility of a world war and all we are saying is that's interesting yeah i know that's what mathematicians do right we <laughs> we have like everything in our okay so let me tell you a small story it's not that small i hope you are up for it yeah definitely what about you raghav yeah of course okay so uh let's talk about this guy called firma um uh, do you know about pythagoras theorem yes or firma is the same person whose last theorem was yes uh, yes that's where i'm going topic okay yeah so uh, this guy came up with theorems one of his theorems was that if you look at an equation of the form x bar n plus y bar n equals z bar n and if you try to fit in integers into the x y and z then for an n which is bigger than 3 you should have uh only the trivial solutions like 1 plus 0 is 1 that sort of thing isn't it been hasn't it been proved wrong by 144 raised to 5 no it's not wrong okay i'm confused but i know 144 raised to 5 is involved in this okay uh i have 
read the proof a long time ago. So sorry, I cannot comment on that. But so uh, apparently, Firma was a judge uh, by day and a mathematician by night. And in some of his book, somewhere he wrote along the margin that, oh, I know the proof of this. It's so simple or something like that. And it took us years to figure it out. Years. Not only did it take us years, it took some pretty advanced technology. And that technology is what we call elliptic, elliptic curves. So uh, I won't go into the technicalities of what elliptic curves are. But essentially, these were things that were thought of as very pure mathematical objects. Um, turns out, now the entire system of bank transactions and the security of the system actually depends on cryptography, which is a product of elliptic curves. So mathematicians work with these really complicated tools. And I actually have an Iranian friend who is telling me about a friend who uses all this stuff in, like he was, a, he was, um, the US Navy asked him to work on some top secret mission uh, based on his mathematical knowledge. And like he uses pure math to do stuff for them. So yeah, mathematicians are these people who will just be sitting with elliptic curves and be like, huh, that's interesting. That's basically <laughs> what we do. <laughs> Actually, I have a small question. I'm not exactly a, a small question, but I don't know how, how large the answer to it will be. How oh. are the two fields of um, elliptic curves and cryptography related? Cryptography or is a product of elliptic curves. So there are certain computations that you need to do. And um, I had taken a course on cryptography, but I don't remember it too well. Basically, uh, what happens is, uh, how it works is, there is a public key that is given outside, which is available to everybody. And then there is a private key. So that private key is like a passcode to some elliptic curve thing. And like you need to really know your stuff well and you need the private key to be able to access the code on the other end okay so if i know uh, like okay now figuring out the elliptic curves uh, uh, equation hmm. is uh, what would apparently be you know great for hackers so to speak yes right? yeah yeah yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not very well prepared to talk about it. But if we do another episode, I can prepare completely and give you a lecture on it. <laughs> well, that'd be, that'd be interesting. I'd look forward to it. Yeah. yeah, that would be fun indeed. So on this note, I'd like to say that I had a lot of fun with both of you today. Same. Yeah. And yeah, thanks for all the fears regarding World War Three. I will sleep much better at night. I never let you sleep, right? Every time I talk, you tell me the same thing. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, since you know there's going to be a world war and the world is going to shit, just sit in your chair, relax, enjoy the lockdown and listen to our podcast.
we'll see you next time